here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Good morning. My name is Angelina Carlton. I'm the founder of Legacy Planning, a boutique coaching and advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. This morning, I have the pleasure of introducing Noah Healy. He is a recreational mathematician and programmer working on upgrading capitalism for this computer age. His tagline is better markets for a wealthier world. He's also developed a superior commodity market design to make production more profitable and economies stronger. So without further ado, welcome, Noah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I also understand you're a graduate of the University of Virginia. Uh, yes, yes. I uh, was the last person admitted to their nuclear engineering department. So you're a very smart person, and I look forward to diving deep into this. Uh, I'm not sure if I should call it an app, but we'll get into that in a moment. So is there anything that you would like to tell the listeners about yourself uh, that might break the ice further? Do you have a favorite movie? Like, is it Trading Places or? <laughs> well, Trading Places is pretty good, but uh, Star Wars, um, I'm I'm actually a little young for prime Star Wars, but uh, the aunt who was my daycare provider when I was two, which is when Star Wars was actually released, worked at the local movie theater that Star Wars came out at. Uh, As a result, I saw one or two matinees of Star Wars for essentially its entire initial run while I was learning how to talk. Uh, And that, that resulted in Star Wars being pretty deeply embedded in, in me. Um, yes, and there's some amazing messages in Star Wars, whether it's Yoda or, uh, yeah, these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, trust your feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. So what do you mean by your tagline of better markets for a wealthier world? Uh, Well, marketplaces are an information technology and a a trustable news source, and they they work to coordinate large-scale economies, and they pretty much just happen by accident. Um, What a marketplace, what market prices do is allow individual businesses that are in competition with one another to nevertheless behave as if they're all coordinating with each other. And so we can sort of throw more human brains at a problem and get better solutions that way. Uh, The difficulty is that the design of marketplace that we use uh, goes back to the Renaissance and there's no conception of computers and what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Markets have to deal with the universe, which is, you know, a big, messy place that we don't know very much about. And so there's a lot of noise that's implicit and markets basically work to cancel that noise out by having people argue about what kind of prices that they're willing to take and publishing what deals actually get made. The difficulty is that the more noise the market's dealing with, the the more it has to charge the user base for the service it's providing, uh, which which is totally reasonable if the user base can't produce noise. 
unfortunately, okay. communication speeds and computer speeds mean that it's actually possible to inject noise into the marketplace at a cost that's lower than the benefits that you gain from being part of a marketplace that's dealing with a lot of noise. Okay, so, so this, yeah. yeah, so if I were to intrude for a moment and I were to play devil's, devil's advocate and say it to you, but the house makes their money off of fees. What say you? Uh, well, exactly. Um, there's there's no interest uh, if you're using a marketplace that's designed the way marketplaces are designed now to do anything about this problem because increasing the scale and scope of the, the market and making it make more money okay. uh, makes the operator more money as well. Sure, the house wins. Um, so what I have is a design that switches up the the incentives and allows you to drop your as an operator you get to drop your costs faster than you get to drop your revenues so while total revenues would be down okay. profits would actually be higher because it's a much simpler system to administer absolutely and i think that this is much more equitable but you know if i were to compare to let's say the 1980s and that movie trading places I would think today, J.P. Morgan, from my understanding, they have a supercomputer that skims a penny or something or so, a penny or two pennies or whatever the exact number is. I'm not sure what the exact data is in terms of their high frequency trading. So, yes. yes. So yes. What, what are your thoughts about that? Um, basically, they aren't providing a valuable market function. Um, okay. They aren't actually producing price information, that, that critical thing that allows the businesses to coordinate through the marketplace. That's the service that's actually been provided. What they've done is essentially taken advantage of this noise thing I was talking about. Um, and and we see, we can see that since the 80s, the fraction of the economy that the financial system takes up has actually been increasing as a share. Uh, that's that's not a good sign in a service, um, particularly if the service is providing effectively the same service over that time frame. Um, if that if it's increasing its its share and the service is the same, then you're paying more for the same, or i.e., you're getting less, right. uh, and that's that's what we're seeing. Uh, with marketplaces that can provide that service at a lower cost to the economy, what that that excess money essentially gets to be reinvested in the productive economy. And that that cycle becomes a virtuous cycle that increases the the overall size of the economy itself. Yeah. And it's it's exponentially positive. So if I'm an investor for a moment, let's say I put on my investor hat. This would be a great idea because of diversification. So if I didn't want to put all of my eggs into cryptocurrency, if I wouldn't, if I don't want to put all of my eggs into gold or silver, this is something that, let's say that I'm even a member of a family business and the industry that my product or service is in is being challenged at this time or changed in the landscape at this time. And I want to know that my money is going to be um, just not lost. Like if somebody is playing options, they could, you know, create a put or a call. And then, you know, on the Thursday or the following Friday, when it expires three weeks out, or I mean, I'm, I'm obviously talking some investment language there, it, they, they could lose their shirt or $3,000 or 30,000 or, or whatever that number is. So uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if you see uh, some of the, the things, this is shading more into stocks than commodities, but but they're a little bit more famous these days with the, the GameStop and the, the so-called Reddit apes. Um, because uh, these marketplaces are foundationally competitive, okay. um, a large surge of coordinated people can discombobulate the market in severe ways. Uh, and that's, that's what bubbles are. Um, and within the market structure that we use right now, there's no way to determine the difference between uh, a bubble uh, or some other illegitimate uh, price maneuver and actually legitimate sentiment change. Um, okay. People 
could actually decide that GameStop is the only functioning mall company and deserves to have lots and lots of money. And that might be completely legitimate. You know, time will tell. Um, on the other hand, uh, a handful of influential social media people could post up their book and get thousands of teenagers to to do the same thing they do in lockstep. And as a result of that, create a incredibly powerful noise signal that becomes incredibly profitable if you can time it right, which as the instigators, they can. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of thing... Um, isn't isolated to you know things in the news you saw stuff like the flash crash around the time of the global financial crisis or the global financial crisis itself um these kinds of events aren't rare uh yeah and i i want to get into that in a moment uh but i have a question first so is what you're creating is it an app is it a platform is it a website similar to like a marriage trade uh, it would be effectively a platform. Um, okay. It would be like the thing that Ameritrade currently connects to. Uh, okay. It's, it's more like the New York Stock Exchange or this something that CME Group uh, has in Chicago or the London Metals Exchange. It's that kind of a, a thing. Um, the users could access it through an app. Um, mm. And because it's simpler... Uh, that becomes a more practical thing to do. It's not infrequent to have to go through brokerages and, in fact, sometimes several layers of brokerages if you're too sort of small. Uh, in, the, in the global space, we have a, a fairly robust and, and sort of functioning economy uh, that's, that's well situated, but I've spoken to people from around the world, and it's not unusual in places like India or Brazil or or spots in Central Asia for there to be uh, half a dozen to a dozen brokers that connect the the farmer to to whoever it is actually needs to take it off the truck and stick it in their factory and none of those people work for free. Uh, and so there can be many, many layers. And again, that's an exponential uh, kind of relationship. If, if you're taking a 5% markup, that's a 5%, you know, cost of operation. But if 10 people in a row take a 5% markup, uh, that's not, that's not a 50% bump in the price that's that's a lot more than that yeah so is it in the theoretical phase right now or where are you at um it is primary theory primarily theoretical um i'm pursuing the patent right now and yes. um i'm looking for opportunities to put it into into practice uh some of the concepts are being uh used as part of proposals for uh, markets that are trying to be launched in Singapore uh, and and other kinds of uh, kind of scaling uh, issues, um, just just trying to find just trying to find a place to get sort of actual users to to trade through this kind of idea. Well, I think the idea is an amazing idea. And so if I look for a moment to, let's say, we just brought up Singapore. In the 70s, there was the Asian contagion between Vietnam, Thailand, China, Japan. Their housing and commodity market fell. And even with currencies, we kind of have an idea that in the cycles of currencies, a, a single currency might go 70 years, 100 years. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so uh, I, I, I might make the presumption that your app or your, your platform would flatten the curve of the highs and the lows, at least for the... Uh, investors that are that's that's extremely likely because what my system does is actually provides uh knowledgeable forecasters incentives to do precisely that uh because i i pay the forecasters um a percentage of the trades that run through the marketplace uh the more value 
that those trades have, the higher the value of what the forecasts are, um, if that makes sense. And so a scary marketplace that's, that uh, has unpredictable uh, you know, crashes or booms isn't actually going to produce uh, the same value of trade as a predictable marketplace will. Mm-hmm. Um, predictability in price is is the key because that's what allows individual businesses to do planning. Um, you're talking about South Asia. That's one of the most agriculturally productive regions on earth. Um, however, dot, uh, dot, dot. They, yeah, that, <laughs> uh, they've had historical problems with uh, transportation. So to, to become the breadbasket of the world, um, it would have to be worth shipping out of that region. Um, and that would require investment in everything from ports and rail to anti-piracy measures, uh, which have all historically been very bad in that, that area, going back to, you know, Magellan, basically. Um, and and making investments in an environment where you don't know what the price is going to be tomorrow doesn't make any sense. So, so that, that pricing knowledge uh, creates this, creates that sort of stability around the idea of, of doing the infrastructure work and, and being able to exploit these things more effectively. Yes, yes. Uh, And and speaking of China for a moment, uh, there's a company called Evergarden. And they are the company that built the cities. You're nodding your head. Okay. Yes. And now they want to take them down because they are they're in a financial crunch. But the, uh, let, let me, for lack of better vocabulary, the villagers that have invested their money from the countryside into these cities are basically jumping out of windows and, you know. Uh, well, and coming through them, um, uh, it's, it's hard to get highly reliable information out of China, but I saw a story a week ago that, uh, sort of their version of Occupy Wall Street was taking prisoners. Um, the story was accompanied by a photograph of uh, some guys who were supposedly uh, the investors standing in offices with uh, the the suits lying down, face down on the ground. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I don't think there was any bloodshed, uh, but. Yeah, uh, China has China has gone through an unprecedented expansion in their economy over the last forty years. At this point, with cities uh, in Africa and brand new cities throughout yes, China, yeah. yeah. Uh, the you know, in nineteen eighty, there was what maybe one or two cities on Earth that had populations of ten million or more like Mexico City and maybe another one. Um, and in China, there's like 50 or 60 of those now. Um, and and the, the incentives they, they put in place uh, for, for sort of getting up through the bureaucracy was if you make your land worth more money, then you'll get a promotion. Mm-hmm. Well, what makes land worth more money than putting a high rise on it? Um, you know, instead of, instead of, yeah, being able to put 10 families, you can put a thousand families because you have an understory building there. Sure. And so, the economy is a scale, right? Yeah. So they, they just built, uh, built the future regardless of whether or not it was going to show up. Uh, there was a story, this was nearly a decade ago at this point, actually probably more than that. Uh, about China building the world's largest mall, and there were there was no occupancy. They had, they'd just gotten finished. It was bigger than the Mall of America, and they were at under five percent occupancy. And the people who had built it said, "Yeah, we didn't even bother looking to sign up, you know, anchor stores or anything like that. We've got an economy that's growing at eight percent a year. Um, in a decade, this thing will be full." Right. Um, and, and like I said, it's probably been over a decade at this point. Uh, I don't know whether or not it filled up or not, but that kind of bubble thinking, um, right. uh, 
no tree grows to the sky. Uh, there is a ceiling someplace. Maybe China's hit theirs. Maybe this is just a bobble along the way. I'm certainly not an expert on the internal economy of China. Well, I would think then that your platform would uh, balance out some of those losses. Uh, it certainly would. My, my concept is highly bubble resistant. Um, the issue with bubbles comes down to when shifts start, when the existence of the shift starts taking over the growth. So it's entirely reasonable for something to suddenly be worth twice as much. Um, you know, it's, Elon Musk just got a contract from NASA in his space thing, making it radically more valuable. And at the same time, uh, Jeff Bezos's, uh, was it Blue Origins? They didn't get the contract, making it radically less valuable. Those kinds of things happen. But if people see the price of something increasing and decide that they're going to start investing in that in order to sort of ride the wave, um, then their investments will in turn cause the price to increase. And what you get is sort of an unintentional self-reinforcing pyramid scheme. And that's what bubbles are. Uh, and and I, I'm unaware of, you know, good studies on sort of how fast uh, assets can appreciate before they'll attract bubble behavior. Um, but... Uh, certainly with 40 years of an entire economy expanding of 8% a year, uh, the leading edges of that are going to have a few sort of self-induced bubbles. I mean, the global financial crisis was caused because America's real estate boom switched into bubble behavior at some point between 1960 and 19 or 2007. Yeah, I also think America was sold an illusion. Maybe the whole world was sold an illusion with that real estate bubble. Uh, yeah. Uh, with my system, however, um, because of the price curve being what what is being forecasted about, uh, in order to have a bubble in existence, you would have to forecast an exponential forward curve over decades into the price curve. And since that is if really obviously nonsense, mm -hmm. uh, even, even in the, the throes of the, the frenzy of you know, the 2000s, people were willing to admit that while the existing housing stock was certainly worth what it was currently worth and was obviously going up that the boomers would retire and or die by say 2040 and and obviously prices would start coming down at that point um obviously we didn't get anywhere near there but uh that that tapering at the far end maybe maybe 25 years down the road but that's still available as a as a economical time slot to forecast about within my system um, allows you to break the illusion of the exponential growth. And once it's broken, then you can start thinking a lot more sensibly about how, how to transition that, that, you know, values can go up, but they, they can't, they can't scream off to infinity. Right, right. So I would think that your platform would mitigate losses. So let me give you a, a scenario here. So let's say there's an, an investor and he or she would like to invest 100 million. Maybe they'll lose 10 million, but they could make 5 million or they could make 100 million. But it seems like maybe at worst case scenario, they would lose 10 million. It, do, do, are those numbers kind of correct in the, you know, what you might say would be the risk? Um, that's, that's not unreasonable. What, what, my scheme really does for uh, a forecaster slash investor is it allows them to limit their exposure to whatever it is that they're actually willing to risk. Um, in the existing system, in order to get any kind of real returns, you have to use leverage to, to get yourself up to there. And so if you're borrowing at five or 10 X, um, then 
the risk is that on a drop, um, your position can get wiped out. So if you're borrowing at 10x, you've got $100 million, you're effectively investing a billion dollars. Um, but if your position goes down by 10%, then you're wiped out at that point. Um, if the position goes down 1%, you'd lose $10 million. Now, to save yourself from being wiped out, perhaps you have some sort of stoppage in place that would, if it went down 1%, get you out with the 10 million. On the other hand, the flash crash structure means that it could blow through that. The marketplace basically isn't forced to give you uh, uh, the price that you asked for uh, when you ask for it. And, and if there's a general deluge, then you can, you can lose your shirt. And it can get a lot worse than that. Uh, and and for the, the big companies that went out of business, it did. They were operating at way more than 10x leverage and the market as a whole dropped by way more than 10% um, and did it as a step, basically just boom, it's worth a lot less now. Uh, and so they went from, from not just getting wiped out but actually being in debt and bankrupt um, nice. to, to those situations. This, my system, uh, is operating off of a paramutual concept. And so it's providing the leverage effect as a fundamental concept of the system. Basically, mm -hmm. you use your information and your money to buy into a position. And the cost of buying in is based on the value you see in the outcome. So, uh, if it turns out that you're 100% wrong, which is not likely, but certainly possible, um, that position would be wiped out. It would, it would go to zero, but it, would, it could never go to a negative number. And, and every amount of partial correctness that there is in the position um, is going to give you something back. Whereas in the existing system, if, if you go in to get the kind of leverage that's necessary to, to match the sorts of returns that I'm proposing as, a, as an average. Um, if you're 8% wrong, then you're going to go to zero. Right. Um, and if you're 9% wrong, then you're going to go to zero and you're going to have to cough some stuff up um, on the back end. Uh, so that, that sort of thing gives you a massive uh, risk-adjusted rate of return advantage over what the current market offers. That's great. And I wonder who would be your ideal customer to sign up? That's where things get tricky with marketplaces. Uh, the marketplaces are starting to become popular in e-commerce, um, but but the hard part is that they're a two-sided system. You need produce, you need buyers and sellers to right. come to your marketplace. My situation is actually even worse than that. I have a three-sided marketplace. Okay. So I need buyers, sellers, and forecasters. Okay. Although the buyers and sellers can provide some of that information initially. Um, so my ideal customer is a commodity space uh, which is currently too small uh, to be able to support the infrastructure of existing markets um, where there's uh, groups that would be willing to pilot out with one to five percent of their production uh, through this kind of this style of marketplace. Um, so there are agricultural products that aren't sort of huge. Uh, some of them like oats, for example, is like a $2 billion global market. Correct. Correct. Normally that would be too small. Okay. Uh, but because oats have been traded since, you know, the English exchange uh, in the city of London, they're grandfathered in. But uh, newer, uh, newer products aren't. Uh, and so some of those which are in the hundreds of millions to billions uh, could, could qualify. Also, uh, other countries, I'm sort of searching worldwide um, because there can be local or internal marketplaces that right now 
have to use uh, American pricing. Uh, so for example, Ukraine produces an awful lot of wheat, but they don't have local marketplaces that are worth anything. So the farmers actually hedge on the Chicago exchanges, but this is quite expensive for them because they have to buy into their hedge. And then after they're done using it, they have to buy back out of their hedge, losing money uh, on both sides of the trade because they can't deliver, not to Chicago, not sure. economically. I was going to suggest that I, what is it, the law of necessity? <laughs> <laughs> that I think that these days people are looking for alternatives, alternative models and alternative choices. And especially when there's pain and with the U.S. Um, dollar, you know, the inflation's going up and, you know, we don't know. Uh, I think right now, at least Americans, you know, <laughs> with gas prices going up, it just, uh I just when I look back at the 70s and just the inflation, somebody could buy a pickup truck back in the 70s for a reasonable price. And now it's thirty or forty thousand dollars for a decent pickup truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was, my uh, my dad was a football fan. And I remember car commercials from the early 80s uh, and the the prices that were quoted for cars in those days uh, are stunning by, right. by modern standards. It was possible. It was possible. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Americans, and I've had a couple of guest speakers on this Legacy Series podcast that talked about Americans then transferring their money and investments and so forth to foreign jurisdictions like Switzerland. And I learned about investing uh, in foreign jurisdictions and foreign trusts and so forth back in 2013, but it was back to necessity again. It, it was what will protect my future, what will make sense, what is logical, what is practical, or do I do the same thing that everyone else is doing and then get the same results? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a real issue. Um, and and if, if I'm right, I mean, I, obviously I think I am, that the market structure that we have is unstable. To Unsustainable? Existence. Yeah. Well, computers really change the the, the ca calculation for change the landscape. Change, exactly. Yeah. Change how we do business, how we communicate, how we talk, how we relate. So, if markets, if we can expect markets to be, perform worse every time computers get faster, and we can certainly expect that based on the experience of the last four decades and the underlying mathematics of the market operation, um, then, then these kinds of things are going to get worse um, until, until people are interested enough to, to reach out to a, something that can survive. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to kind of make a comment that if, you know, and I don't know your market as well as, as you probably do, because I'm in the coaching and advisory space, but I would think that if you're breaking into a market that's controlled by Goldman Sachs, how will they benefit? What's that smile on your face? <laughs> um, so I, I would I would actually be a little leery of, of claiming that Goldman Sachs had control. The, the, the company that truly has control of the commodity space is uh, the CME Group, okay. um, which changed their name. It's It comes from... Chicago Mercantile Exchange, mm -hmm. um, and they are—they're the global source. Okay. Um, the the way commodity markets, as presently constructed, work uh, is that in general a benchmark market occurs, and uh, so there's there's a wheat trade in France and there's mm -hmm. a wheat trade in Chicago, and if the two of them disagree, France changes because Chicago wheat is the benchmark and that's what wheat costs on planet earth. Mm. And if you disagree, it's because you're wrong. And that's just all there is. Right. Um, and where the benchmarks are, there's a, a handful in, in New York. There's a lot of them in Chicago. There's a lot of them in London. Um, in general, benchmarks basically just to stay benchmarks because it's based on how much trade volume happens there. And because what you're interested in as a user of a marketplace is that price information, trading on a non-benchmark market um, does happen. There's conveniences to sort of having the local guys down the street for delivery and so on. Um, 
but if you really care about that price and if if it's your livelihood you really do then you got to go talk to the benchmark and and talk to the benchmark through a broker or a broker broker or or something else is still a better deal than trading with you know the 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 boondocks market of of outer whatever that you're that, that that's that's down the street um and with markets structured the way that markets are currently structured that's that's effectively just the way it is um a country like china as big as it is can't take over the benchmarks without uh outbidding what's called the implicit order book value basically every time you make a trade request to a marketplace you're giving them for free an option to accept mm-hmm. your trade request um, and the value of those trade requests aren't very high but there's billions of them and so the aggregate value of all of them is trillions of dollars and unless you can outbid that price you can't provide a market that's going to be as liquid as the benchmark is. Um, and nobody has trillions of dollars to sort of flush down a toilet right. to, to outbid these guys. So they have software that can execute these trades. And algorithms, yes. Uh, yes, in, in uh, microseconds. Correct. So millions of trades per second. Uh, and that's not fast enough because computers are as fast as computers are. Mm -hmm. And the marketplace, in order for markets, the kinds of markets we have, to be able to have the safety features that are necessary for them to work, they have to go faster than the people that are trading on them. And thanks to computers, everyone gets to be the same speed. Yeah, I like one of the things I like about your concept and idea is that it brings a more humane approach to computers being here. Like somebody could take a fork and use it to, you know, eat their dinner or they could take a fork and stab their pet. I know that's not the best metaphor, but you know what I mean? It's well, so this is this. Yeah, this this goes into sort of a concept and philosophy I've been working on for decades now is that. In many cases, we have computers. It's very rare that we use computers. Okay. And a and the the products of the industrial revolution are all around us, and so we can see these things. Cars don't work like horseless carriages. Um, tractors don't work like moldboard plows. Um, the having the kind of energy density and torque uh, that's available from steam engines or internal combustion engines changes how you do transportation, planting, manufacturing, forging. Um, the, you, can, you can go on YouTube and watch videos of people making you know, objects out of metal by hand. And it's quite fascinating and satisfying. You can also go on YouTube and watch how factories produce forged metal objects and they're not similar to each other um you know the people stick something in fire and then look at it and then hit it with something or maybe a machine um the factory takes this ingot that's white hot and slams it into a thing that you know turns it into spaghetti basically um and then maybe grabs and twists it into the right shape and then punk you know an axle falls out and then that's just it um computers where they've been adopted have largely been used to replicate uh, the the organizational structures that were already there. Uh, If you, again, sort of going back in time, if you go back to like the 50s or 60s, something like the Sears Tower Mm -hmm. existed because in order to operate, Sears needed to have thousands of clerks taking in orders, doing the accounting, checking on inventories and so on to keep track of everything. Amazon is doing pretty much exactly the same thing, except they have computers that can take that order 
from you, can do that inventory, and so on. And there, there definitely are some advantages. We've learned a little bit about logistics between now and then, and Amazon's doing much better logistics than Sears ever did. Um, but in many, many cases, uh, it really is, it's just exactly the same. Uh, you know, the newsletter that you would put together is the same newsletter that, you know, your your secretary or your PR department would have put together and it's getting emailed instead of mass mailed and that's cheaper and that's, right. that's good. And thank you, Grammarly. Still, <laughs> right. Yes. But it's still, it's still the same newsletter. It's still being composed more or less the same way. Right. Uh, and so those sorts of structural changes um, where you identify what it is that's important about what you're doing and what computers are, are good at that that makes it possible to do that thing um and is making our intentions more efficient is that how you might say it uh that's 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 a good that's a good way of thinking of it um i i think of it sort of more in terms of exploiting capabilities um so like with engines, engines can produce a lot more force than human muscle can. So if there's some way to solve a problem that's very effective, but requires more force than human muscle can put forth, use the more effective solution. So humans have to row boats with oars, um, but, but these, that, that, you know, spiral screw design moves water more efficiently than ores do, um, but not with human levels of power behind it. Um, so you're taking advantage of, of the greater power. Computers are very good at replicating behavior, um, keeping track of things, um, you know, instantaneous recall, wide area communication and so on. Um, so if, if there's a way to solve, solve a problem that involves doing an enormous amount of bookkeeping, um, so much so that humans doing it would never be practical, then, then you can transfer that problem to a computer and just have it solve the problem through bookkeeping. Yeah. Um, yes. So the greatest benefit then to a, a, a user or to an investor would be the mitigation of losses, or would it be that this platform rewards honesty? What say you? I think, I think ultimately it's the rewarding of honesty. Okay. Because um, I know these days it, it, everything is more transparent and people care about ESG, which is that environmental social governance acronym. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I think I think sort of the world produces enough uh, confusion and complexity uh, all by itself. It's it's sort of hard enough to solve the problem of how to cope with what reality actually is without having to pile on the problem of whether or not you can trust the guy standing next to you to be telling you the truth. Um, and so. Uh, Markets have existed for centuries because they are the most trustable institutions in our societies. Um, and, and we've seen not just recently erosions of, of that trust, but we've also seen in the 20th century very dramatically what happens to societies that forcibly remove that trust mechanism. Um, the, the, the communist dictatorships and the, the horrifying uh, human rights and economic collapses that, that those, those areas experienced okay. as a result of not having trustable information um, was devastating. And I also think with the increased transparency today, people want more choices. Like even with, you just spoke about human rights. I know with the luxury industry and data rights, people are much more informed if there is some company that's scraping their data, monetizing it, and then the uh, client of that brand 
including Google and social media brands, is unhappy. You know, why are you getting all of the benefit and I'm not getting any of that monetization off of the data scrubbing? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a major issue. Um, and but consumers and, are so much more informed today. Sorry, go ahead. Well, that that's true, um, but at the same time. Uh, the, the new generations are so much less interested in personal privacy and sort of so much more comfortable with, with n- losing that autonomy. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of room uh, in, in current systems to kind of exploit the, the advantages that, that computers offer us. Yeah. Um, and and building systems that can allow taking some of that back, I think, is is going to be key. Timely, timely. We have we have computer technology. It's it's not going to go anywhere, mm-hmm. uh, and and it does undermine the the systems that we have. And so we can't. We're not going to get rid of computers, and we can't live without economic, social, cultural, and political structure so we yeah. have to develop structures that aren't going to kill us and right now we're not very good at that yeah 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 well i see it and you're right i think that um people want alternatives and if the existing model may have worked 100 years ago or 200 years ago or whenever there needs to be an update so i appreciate that you're bringing this this platform and this idea to the marketplace um, even just for the, the conversation today, because it opens up a space of even just people realizing with their imagination that there is more choice. It's not just right. So this leads well, me yes, per- yeah. This leads me perfectly to the, the the next question about the three values that you get to honor. Because I think there's a bit of integrity here, and then I will close up at the top of the hour with uh, you know the legacy you would like to create and leave behind. But I, but you must be values driven because some people wouldn't care. They wouldn't care if the little guy gets screwed. Pardon my French. Um, well, uh, so yeah, uh, uh, my my kind of primary big driver is learning. Uh, education. Um, not necessarily education. Okay. Uh, I, I'm a lot of an autodidact. I've I've had I've had great educational opportunities. Um, although when I tell people about them, um, what I've discovered is that most people haven't had great educational opportunities. Um, and so, so I think, I think learning has to be sort of a bigger part than that. And, and it, it needs to be a part of, of a normal life to, to, learn about the state of the art of something and and at least try to explore beyond that and so that's where my recreational mathematician stuff comes from and that's that's how this journey started okay Um, so you want humans to transform and be able to grow compared to being stifled or traumatized yes yes um there's a historian um uh, connections. Uh, James Burke. Have you ever seen his his work, uh, The Day the Universe Changed? He he was a filmmaker and historian. Uh, released some very good things on BBC. I think they're actually like online for free these days. In the seventies, eighties, maybe even the nineties. Um, and his premise was that the Industrial Revolution uh, was not only rooted in thousands of more years of history of human technological development, but was also sort of foundationally a result of a bunch of of people. It's not just Thomas Edison banging out the light bulb in the washing machine. The the infrastructure of better better steel and uh, and cheaper wiring and, and on and on and on that allowed whoever it was that kind of put the last two snaps together to have two snaps put together um, was the result of thousands of, of people that just got interested in pond scum or, uh, you know, 
toenail clippers or, or whatever, and just figuring out something about manufacturing or, or the world or, or whatever, whatever it was. Um, and, and, uh, was it the phantom toll booth? There's a, a thing about, um, anybody learning anything makes all of us better off. And yes. so, so that kind of, that kind of just, uh, uh, learning for fun, learning, learning, that's, that's very central. And, you know, I happen to kick this particular rock over. Um, and once I'd done that, uh, I analyzed the, the thing that resulted. And um, there, there are some personal values about uh, sort of my interests in, in truth and and functional integrity and so on um, that that went into the, the that kind of design, but once you once I got done with that and then started researching the history to see whether or not somebody had already thought this up. Normally, when I come up with something new and interesting, it isn't new at all. Um, once I realized that this cost less than the systems that we have now and the consequences of it costing less would be massive economic expansion um, across wide varieties of the economy simultaneously, that's when this really kicked over from sort of my hobby and isn't this an interesting thing to think about, you know, for a couple hours a day to really a, a purpose. I mean, um, we were talking about China's enormous economic growth. One of the most impressive things about that is that they lifted basically a billion people out of absolute poverty in the last half of the 20th century, which is in one sense, one of the, the, the biggest human rights successes in, in existence. Um, economic growth is is more directly connected to human well-being than sort of any other single factor and and being able to lower the transaction costs goes direct to the bottom line of that that well-being and being able to lower transaction costs this much yeah and i might call that fairness in terms of a symmetrical business model or a symmetrical relationship that I'm happy with that word. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and I have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. Um, sure. What would you like your legacy to be? And I know that this is, you know, you spoke about purpose a moment ago. I think for anyone who even gives voice to what their legacy would be, it's a commitment that they want their life to matter, that they're not just going to be hiding behind their fears or that, uh, you know, they're going to be a follower, but rather they're willing to think for themselves and, you know, put their stake in the ground. So what is the, what is the legacy you would like to, to create? Because you've already got so many of the fundamental pieces of your foundation in place. Well, um, going back to some of the stuff we've been talking about, I think computers are a bigger deal than steam engines were. And steam engines basically wiped out the entire cultural, political, social order of Europe, which developed them, and then the world as as they got to there. Um, Because doing things the old way didn't make any sense anymore once you had tractors and railroads and and all the rest of that stuff. So I believe that computers being a bigger deal than steam engines are going to do the same thing. I think, I think our social, cultural, religious, economic orders uh, are, are in their final days and that we need better ones. And I would like my legacy to be contributing to building something that can actually work and, and support a future that, that has the technology and understanding that we have. Um, because the biggest thing about computers isn't that they play chess better than we do or that they can trade on the market in a millionth of a second. The biggest thing about computers is actually the, the philosophical breakthrough that these are machines that are that are literally magic. They, they become whatever you tell them to become. 
Right. So we we have access to, uh, you know, Tolkien esque magic. If you if you know how to tell this machine how to be something, that's mm -hmm. what that machine is. And, um, and we'd like to have Gandalf the Grey behind the machine compared to well, the other fellow Saruman or whatever his name well, was. It, yes, yes. Well, we we don't really have wizards. We just have people. And, right, and so, right. So we're going to have to learn like spells that aren't horrifying or traumatizing uh, every or, time there's a yes. war you know how many wars there's you know been war well, one two vietnam etc afghanistan middle east iraq well e even even far more mundane i mean um there's studies linking social media use to teen suicide and yeah i'm aware rates. of that and and the pandemic has caused much young adult suicide recently. So, so I think it's a, it's a wonderful legacy then because you're applying your talents to a better model that is available in this future. So if they don't, so if people don't like option A, at least you're giving them option B compared to like if somebody walks into, again, this is not the best example. It's just the only one that comes to mind. If they walk into a fast food franchise like McDonald's or Taco Bell and there's only one menu, at least now they can say, well, if I don't like the menu, now I don't have to complain. There are some alternatives in terms of this innovation that you're bringing forward. Uh, yes, yes, I, I hope so. Okay, any, any other final thoughts at, or what is the best way to reach you for any of the listeners? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, can, I can be uh, reached through my website. It's at uh, cordisc.com. That's C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C uh, for coordinated discovery. It's sort of a, a contraction there. Um, uh, or uh, you can reach me at my email address, uh, Noah P. Healy, uh, N-O-A-H-P-H-E-A-L-Y at Yahoo. Um, or uh, you reach out to me on LinkedIn um, I'm Noah Healy. Most Noah Healy's on the internet are me. Um, there's, there, there is another Noah Healy that Google reports, but he's a lot younger than I am. And, uh, I was, I was around for the, the September that never ended. So I, uh, I locked up a lot of the Noah Healy's back then. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you, Noah, so much for being one of the guest speakers on this legacy series. I definitely wanted people who are what I call positive role models that can set an example for others, whether it's the young adults, the Generation Zs, or someone of any age to see that there are always possibilities that are available in this world. We don't have to stay stuck in, inside of a box. And I think you've really brought forward your values of learning and integrity, what I might call service to others, uh, as well as just being driven by purpose. Um, I know the markets are generally driven by a, a kind of a back and forth regarding greed and fear. Uh, but I think that if you're, if you kind of pull it back to the 5,000 foot Eagles view, you're really being driven by purpose in looking at the design itself and asking, you know, with all of the different players and participants, how can we do this better? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that, I think, I think that's the, I think that's the challenge that's in front of us um, with, with these new capabilities. Uh, you know, computers, the internet, um, blockchain is is coming up. Uh, new technologies in AI. Um, people are now learning things about chess and Go that we never knew before, uh, and that that's getting expanded. I think uh, poker is starting to become dominated by AI. Uh, I just saw something recently. I think uh, diplomacy. Um, had an had a AI bot do rather well. Uh, that I don't know if you're familiar with that that bookcase game, but it's a uh, Avalon Hill had a sort of World War One simulator game that's highly abstract called Diplomacy. That's uh, has a very small adherent uh, uh, group. It's it's famous. I think the 2012 World Championship game lasted for three and a half years. Uh, it's, it's an extremely human centric, uh, uh, negotiation and backstabbing game. And there are apparently bots on, on Facebook now that just crush humans on a regular basis. Very interesting. 
Very nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your idea about this platform with the listeners and introducing them to this um, this concept and this alternative. I mean, I can also consider it a best practice because it's thinking beyond just where we are today. And we definitely need that innovative thinking. So thank you so much, Noah. And for anyone who's listening, please like, subscribe, and share with your friends and family. And um, and for Noah, as well as any listener, please keep defining, developing, and executing your legacy because we need more positive role models in this world. Yep. Thank you. Okay.